The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hello, uh, my name is Mia Blaze Campbell. I'm in eighth grade, and I'm a member here at Christ Pres. And I'm so honored to be reading the scripture with you all this morning. Uh, So this morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Mia. Hello, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving week Uh, to those of you who are uh, in the room and those of you uh, who are joining us remotely already on vacation in some warmer, uh, maybe more tropical place. Uh, So I promised last week uh, in the early service, and I I think I forgot to promise in the later service, that I would offer an exciting staff announcement this week and I got an email the next day saying are you leaving and and my first thought was would that be exciting to you because I said this was an exciting announcement and uh, no plans to leave uh, for the Sauls but uh, the exciting announcement that we're all so excited about on our team is that Melanie Beasley will be joining the Old Hickory Boulevard team as the director of kids ministry uh, beginning in the new year. So in just a few weeks. Yeah. Um, so that was initiated by staff members because we love her and we all understand her to be the superpower uh, builder, visionary, and collaborator that she is. It, it, it bodes really wonderfully and well and beautifully for the future of of our, uh, our of our kids ministry and uh, so a little bit about Melanie she's married to Russ uh, they have three kids Catherine Garnett and Henry and uh, her father-in-law who's actually a member here at Old Hickory Boulevard congregation uh, of Christ Pres says that she's the kind of person who's able to run a small country if you asked her to. And uh, we were told a couple of weeks ago by our kids staff that we had more kids in kids ministry uh, that particular Sunday than we ever have in the life of our church. And so uh, it's developing into a small country. Uh, and so so that's good news for all of us. But Melanie's going to give her first um, um, uh, sort of teaching to the kids actually in the worship service on January 1st, uh, which will be New Year's Day. And then there'll be a reception uh, for her and Russ and the kids the following Sunday, January the 8th. And so those of you who are especially invested in kids at Christ Pres, uh, which should be all of us because we all just 
took a vow like we always do at the, the baptism that will come around the parents, all of us will, uh, to help raise kids in Christ together. Uh, so the reception uh, for the Beasleys will be on January the 8th uh, uh, after both services and also between services. So, uh, so that's that. And uh, now we'll get into the sermon uh, where we'll start with a brief what, and then the rest of the sermon will be uh, a why that's attached to the what. And so the what is this. This is something that we do every year, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, because we're entering into a season of, 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 of reminding ourselves and each other of the lavish generosity of Jesus Christ to all of his people and, and giving himself completely away for us, that, that part of our proper response as believers is to live generous lives. And so what we're doing, like we do every year, is invite 100% participation uh, in the life of generosity of our church, especially in the coming season. Uh, this year, as well as every year, uh, we anticipate uh, north of 30% of, of what it takes to run the internal ministries and also all the other wonderful things that we get to participate in as a church out in Nashville and around the world, planting new churches, partnering with nonprofit organizations, over 50 of them uh, in the Nashville area uh, and, and, and elsewhere, supporting uh, campus ministries, etc. That depends on the collective generosity of God's people. And so we want to, as we do every year on this particular Sunday, invite 100% participation. Uh, and um, there's great encouragement along these lines that across our three campuses, there are more households uh, participating in this way uh, through generosity uh, than ever before in the history of our church. That's a sign of health. Uh, there's also a challenge. You may have noticed in the bulletin that we're a bit behind uh, where we usually are. Uh, and that's not due to a lack of participation among our members uh, but, but rather it's because most years, in fact, every year in the last 10, uh, there have been some one-time pretty large gifts that tend to come in during this time of the year that haven't come in yet for some reason. And, and if they don't come in, that's okay. We'll adjust. We'll, we'll, we'll work with whatever the Lord entrusts us with. Uh, but if you are one of those uh, uh, people out there wondering, uh, we invite you to per- continue participating in that way. Uh, if you would like to uh, do that and if you sense God directing you in that way. But uh, all those things being said, I want to start with an anecdote that was uh, shared by our, our friend from California, Johnny Erickson Tata, about a trip that she took to Ghana, which is one of the, the poorest countries in the world, uh, with her team. And they were at a Sunday worship service, a lot like this one, except everybody was standing uh, or sitting on the dirt ground. Uh, it was a tent, and it was a smaller uh, gathering. And the woman who, who gave the announcement, uh, announcements got up and said to Johnny and her crew, Welcome our American friends to Ghana, where we have joy because we need Jesus more. And Johnny went on to talk about how the most exuberant time uh, during that entire worship service was when the poorest of the poor in the world were invited to give. And they gave with what the Bible calls hilarity. You know, when it says that God loves a cheerful giver, uh, the, the literal translation of that word is a hilarious giver, a belly-laughing giver, because... because 
of the abundance of the heart, having recognized how much we've been given, uh, how much we have received, uh, there's an overflow that, 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 that believers tend to experience that results in giving their whole lives away, not just their resources. But this brings us to the why, and, and, and I want to talk about the rich ruler, um, because there's a lot of the why in this. But the first why is this, and, and we have three famous accounts and, and also many more in the Bible that point to this, that it's possible to have nothing in terms of the world's material goods and have a whole lot of joy and a whole lot of exuberance in your life. We, we see this in the book of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes from jail uh, what, what's historically uh, come to be known as the letter of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, Paul says. And he says those kinds of things from prison. But it's also possible to have everything that this world can possibly offer. And that describes many of the people in our community. We live in a very affluent part of the world. A lot of you are crushing it. And a lot of you have discovered that while crushing it, it is also possible to, to have it all but still be looking for joy. You know, that song by you too, you know, haunts us, right? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We see this in the writer of Ecclesiastes. That's an Old Testament book. This is a man who has power, luxury, properties, fame, fortune, and all the rest. And one of the things that he says is that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves it won't be satisfied with it. You can have it and be satisfied, but you can't love it and be satisfied with it because you're always lusting for more. Like, you know, Rockefeller was asked, how much, how much is enough for you? And he says, at any given point, one more dollar. Is this never enough? And then there's a man named Nicodemus. He's this seasoned pillar of the community. He's got power. He also has wealth. He ended up being one of the, the two people who co-purchased the, the, the royalty, uh, you know, gravesite, uh, the, the king's gravesite for Jesus. And, and they buried him there with, with another wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, but he has, he has power. He has wealth. He has moral virtue, standing in the community, etc. And it says that he came to Jesus at night with questions, soul-related questions, contentment-related questions, not unlike the man in Ecclesiastes. And then there's this man here, rich, rich young ruler, um, not unlike Elon Musk, perhaps, you know, possibly running three businesses and having all these resources, having the power to do anything he wants with Twitter. You know, it, that, that was him during that day. He was crushing it. And he had what you could call a Kobe Bryant experience. Did y'all ever read that uh, early in his career interview with Kobe Bryant that Sports Illustrated did? It's out there. You can Google it. But Kobe had just won the Most Valuable Player Award. He was in his 20s. Most Valuable Player Award in the NBA. Best basketball player in the world. Malibu Mansion. Gorgeous wife. Tens of millions of dollars flowing in every single year from salary and endorsements and all the rest. And somewhere in that interview, the journalist asked him, are you happy? And his answer was, I don't believe in happiness. How does this happen? How can this be? That'll be our first question. How can this be? 
And the answer to this is, is that it starts and ends with whatever it is that we are preaching to ourselves. There's this other place in the Gospels where Jesus tells the parable of the person the Bible calls a rich fool. And it says that the rich fool stores up and then stores up some more and then stores up some more and stores up for more. He's a money hoarder. He's a wealth hoarder. And it says that he says to his own soul, the Greek word is psyche, to his own psyche, psyche, to his own soul, he says, he preaches soul. You have an abundance of wealth. You have no need whatsoever. Eat, drink, be merry, be content with your life. And it says that the Lord responds to that, you fool. Your life, your very life, your very soul will be required of you this very moment. So it is with those who store up treasure in heaven and are not rich toward God. Every such sermon, you know, some of us preach to ourselves, well, at least, at least I have this much in the account or in the, you know, the 401k or 403b or, you know, what have you. I have this much in real estate. At least we've got that. And some may say, well, at least I've got this kind of family. Or at least I live in this kind of neighborhood or drive this kind of car or, or, or have this kind of reputation or get to hang with these kinds of people. Every, every one of us has a set of identity markers that we look to and we actually preach to our souls to comfort ourselves, especially in times of stress or fear. And for this particular man, it happened to me money. For, for you or for me, it could be something else. I used to say, at least I have a full head of hair that's nice and curly and everything. I look like Zeus, y'all. I look like the statue of David until I didn't, uh, at least on my head. Never had the body. Gave up working on that a long time ago. But the point is, money's a lot like that. It, it, it evaporates just like my hair did. It turns gray just like my hair did. Augustine said this, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You know, we can say to ourselves, well, at least you have this. You have this, and so you can rest, like the rich fool said about his, his wealth. And, and less on the other side of you have this, and, and less on the other side of that is Jesus, it's going to be like guzzling salt water in order to satisfy Thirst, it will just leave your soul more dehydrated than it already is before you started drinking. Because you're drinking the wrong stuff. You're depending on and trusting in the wrong stuff to hydrate your soul. So Jesus says to the rich ruler, you lack one thing. Now let's just test your, your memory. I know there's at least one person in this room that remembers what he lacked. He lacked what? Lack is what he lacked. He lacked a sense of need. He lacked a sense of, of understanding that, that to thrive is to be dependent. To be truly wealthy in the, in the world of God, in the, in the kingdom of things that last, is, is to deoccupy your soul from anything that's perishable, and fill it with what the poet Wallace Stevens called an imperishable bliss. And the only, the only imperishable, 
imperishable bliss that exists in the universe is Jesus Christ, the priceless treasure. That's it. Anything else will leave us truly lacking. And so he says to the ruler, for you, this, this, you know, I appreciated how Marty you know, delineated during the confession time. Like, for this man it was money, and give it all to the poor. For somebody else, it, you, know, you need to be open-handed with something else. It, it's whatever it is that you look to in the same way that Gollum looked at the ring in, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You know, whatever it is where you, you think you'll be lost without it, you'll actually be lost with it. You have to recognize that. Or you think you can't live without it, you actually have gotten to the point where you can't live with it anymore. Where you think you really have it, but it has you. You know, so he says to this man, because his thing, his golem's ring, was his wealth. Sell it all, give it to the poor, come follow me. Have I emphasized already that it's not this man's money that's the issue? The man Job was the most righteous and the most wealthy person in the world. It's possible. It's hard, but it's possible. Same could be said of Abraham in his time. The Bible talks about King Solomon and all of the splendor and glory and wealth and affluence that God gave to him because he asked not for those things but for wisdom instead. In the new heaven and the new earth where every believer in Christ is headed at the resurrection of those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. The new heaven and the new earth, we're told, is paved with streets of gold, with walls everywhere that are filled with gems. And so so it's not about having wealth. It's about wealth having you. To which Jesus says in, in the 26th verse, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is hyperbole. Lee Eric used a hyperbole up here uh, a minute ago. He said, y'all, this place was jammed uh, like like a bunch of sardines, uh, you know, this morning, and and, uh, including the front um, with with ten baptisms. And and remember what Lee Eric said. He said, there was so much water up here because, you know, Todd just throws it around. I think the second child got rebaptized in the baptism that we saw because of the residual secondhand water. but he said there was so much water up here that there were fish. Well, they weren't really fish. He was exaggerating in order to make a point. Kind of like Bruno Mars does when he says to the woman that he cares about, I would jump in front of a train for ya. Would you, Bruno? I would take a bullet straight through my brain for ya. Would you? He wouldn't do that because that's the end of the relationship. Like, where's it going to leave him? Where's it going to leave her if he jumps in front of a train or takes a bullet through his brain? For her to show his love, right? Hyperbole. Overstatement to make an important point. That's what Jesus is doing here with the camel and needle thing. And the discipleships, or the disciples, they're, they're taking it more literally though, and they start to panic and they say, Well, Lord, who can be saved? And Jesus says, For you, it's impossible. But all things are possible with God. You know, the camel is the biggest known animal to, to that community. And, and, and what does Jesus say about impossible things? Like camels passing through needles' eyes. We said it about mountains, right? Like a lot of you, you've done landscaping, right? Maybe you're a landscape professional. 
or maybe you've had landscaping done, what does it cost to move a ton of dirt? A lot of money. But Jesus says if you have a faith the size of a mustard seed, which was then the, the, the smallest known seed, you can move a mountain with that faith. Probably also hyperbole. I don't know of any mountains being moved because somebody prayed that the mountains would be moved. But, but Jesus is saying, look, it, it's, it's not actually the, the, the size of your faith as much as it is the object of your faith that, that, that's going to make the real stuff, the good stuff, happen, including untethering your heart from perishable things so you can make room in your heart for the imperishable good that is Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus isn't so much after his money as he is after this man's heart and happiness. You can have both God and wealth, but you cannot love both God and wealth. One has to be positioned by your heart in service of the other. And if if God is positioned in service of your wealth, you should fear for yourself. But if your wealth is positioned in service of God, you're probably going to live a robust life that's very memorable to the people around you. So that's how it can be. But but what does it mean? It means we have to let go. We we have to cultivate the art, not necessarily of, of, you know, we're not all called to a vow of poverty to let go of everything that we have, but we are called to hold everything we have at the very least with wide open hands and not with clingy hands. You know, the prophet Jonah says from the belly of the fish, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, Jonah's, Jonah's idol, his false god, was not money, it was his nationalism and his racism and his 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 antagonistic posture toward the Ninevites whom God had called him to preach the gospel knowing that the Ninevites had been hurtful to his own people. And so you could say that it was Jonah's politics that God was asking him to let go of. Give all of your politics away and come follow me. Right? Instead of running the other way to Tarshish with your politics, let go of your politics and follow me and I'll show you how strong my love is. I'll show you how far my love reaches and I'm even going to use you as the vessel as a demonstration to them and to you how far my love and my grace will go to reach evil people and turn them into my daughters and sons, which is precisely what happens in Jonah. 1 Timothy 6 says about those who hoard and cling to money like the rich fool, it's actually, it's actually a word to a pastor. Where an older pastor, a senior minister says to a junior minister, command those who are rich. Now that's, that's a terrifying proposition for a preacher, just so you know. To command those who are used to commanding everybody else. To command those who are probably not as receptive anymore to a command. Because they're so used to running and controlling things. Command those who are rich to be generous. Lest they wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. And so in the name of Christ, rich folk, I command you to live a generous life. 
for your own good. Not because I have any right in myself, but because I too am subject to that very command as a son of God who is the one who gives the command. I'm just a parrot. Mark Twain said it this way. He said, insanity, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again but expecting different results. This guy has no doubt built his life, his rhythms, the way that he uses his time, the way that he treats people. He's oriented all of it toward making bank. He's rich and he's young, which makes him vulnerable. And Jesus says, you need a different method. You've been trying the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results, and you're still not happy. You're still asking that question, what do I still lack? So here's a different rhythm. You know, what, what, if, what if the musicians got up here and said, okay, sing with us. And they changed the word around a little bit and said, okay, sing with us. Some to Jesus I surrender. Some to Jesus freely give. I surrender some, I surrender some, some to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender some. But isn't that how we operate functionally? We surrender some. And typically it's only the stuff that we're comfortable surrendering. We don't even want that anymore, and so sure, I'll surrender that. But surrendering all unclinging ourselves to perishable goods to give the imperishable one the right and jurisdiction to own it all we surrender some which is what has made us into a perishable good so Jesus is saying to the ruler and to us all of your money all of your time, all of your religion, all of your politics, all of your relationships, all of your recognition, all of your fame, all of your fortune, all of your career, all of it, mine. Me first, me only. Those are my terms, is is what Jesus says to those who have ears, ears and hearts to hear. Leave it to me, Jesus says, entirely to decide what your life is going to look like how much power and influence you're going to have, what people think of you, your dreams for your marriage and your family, what your net worth is going to be, I decide. Are you ready for that? Surrender some, surrender all. Which will it be? If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, that person must, must, not may, not can, not should, must deny themselves daily, take up their cross, follow him. He does not say deny your neighbor, take up your comforts, follow your dreams. He doesn't say that. He says surrender all. On what basis can he say such a thing? He has surrendered all. For us, all to thee, my blessed children, I have surrendered all. The only Response that is not an insane response to that is to surrender back. How could you not fall into the arms of the one who loves you more than you love you? 
How could you not? If your life is a solar system, the only thing that can function sustainably as the center of that solar system is God himself. Everything else has to orbit around him. Can you imagine if the earth and the sun entered into an agreement and decided to trade places for a little while? It would destroy everything. It would unravel everything. Christ as the center. How far is Jesus asking us to go? Jesus goes on further in this passage and he he doesn't stop with money. We think, oh, that's oh, you can't get more convicting, challenging, difficult than a rich man's money. How about a loving man's family? Because he goes on to say, oh, and also, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold He's echoing Luke 14 where he gets even more direct and he says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't, doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, can't even be my, they can't be my disciple. They can't be my follower. What on earth? Hyperbole. Hyperbole. He's in Bruno Mars territory here. The point is this. Jesus wants his people to be so tethered to him, heart and soul that their love for him develops into something that looks like hatred in comparison to the next love on the hierarchy of loves. But here's the twist. When you love Jesus more than you love your family, you become a better husband and a better wife and a better parent and a better kid and a better sibling if you put Jesus above all of those other people that you're in a family with. You will love them more, not less than otherwise. If you put Jesus in front of your work, you will become a better boss, not a worse one, a better employee and a better colleague. If you put Jesus before your popularity, students, adults, all of us who want to be known and loved, When your focus is on abiding in Christ and the fruit of his spirit, love, joy, etc. When your focus is on giving things like kindness and love to the people around you, the outcome will be that people like you. But if you're obsessed about getting people to like you, the outcome will be that people don't like you and you're not loving and you're not kind. It's as C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, but if you aim at earth, you'll get neither. It's the solar system of your soul thing. And to the rich ruler in us, when you hate your wealth, in, in this hyperbolic sense of the term, your wealth will actually become a source of blessing. Because you will, you will be so free to renounce the whole compare and compete thing. You will no longer be looking... Uh, you know, covetously up the org chart or, or, or contemptuously down the org chart. You will no longer be envying those who have one more digit in their salary than you do. And you will no longer be looking down on people who have one less digit in their salary than you do. You'll be free from comparison and competition and, and free to love instead. 
if you hate your wealth in comparison to your love for Christ. And you also enter into the hilarity of generosity that Jesus describes. And just to quote Bono one more time, this is a brilliant, brilliant lyric. He talks about in, in, in one of the songs, Walk On, which is one of my favorite U2 songs. He talks about how there are certain blessings that, that have to be um, believed before they're seen. And the implication is that you have to obey those things before you experience them. Generosity is in that bucket. It's in that category. It's counterintuitive. It's counteremotional. It's counter everything that's in us to let go of that which we think makes us secure. Where's this all headed? We'll close with this and head to the table. Thanks for being patient with me on this. We might ask, if the rich ruler decides to take Jesus up on his offer and let it all go, just hold it all with an open hand and, and, and you know, let Jesus be in charge of the distribution. Let Jesus be the Lord of the distribution of what you can keep, of what you must let go, of what you can spend on yourself, of what you need to spend on things eternal. It, let's just say for, hypothetically that the rich ruler went a different direction than he did. What's the return on investment there? What's the ROI? Jesus says so. He is the ROI. Your alternative is to follow me. It's to follow me. It's to be with me. Jesus is the imperishable treasure. He holds himself out to us with the Psalms as his backdrop, which remind us that long before he ever asks us to follow him, he has followed us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's from the Psalms that that, that Jesus himself lived in. And because his goodness and his mercy have followed us, we then follow him into goodness and mercy and, and every place and every person that that leads us toward. The greatest riches you can have, the greatest wealth you can have, he's saying to the rich ruler and anyone else who will listen, any other eavesdropper, the greatest wealth you can have is a king who owns everything, who loves you even when you don't love him. And this is what he holds out to the ruler who ultimately walks away from it, which is insanity. Did you notice what it says about Jesus' posture toward this man? Jesus knows all things, and so he knows the man's about to walk away. And what does it say? Jesus looked at him and judged him. No, it doesn't say that. Jesus looked at him and and, and looked down on him and gossiped about him and, and, and wrote tweets about him. It doesn't say that. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And it was so noticeable that the writer noticed it and wrote it down. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And it doesn't say he walked away feeling judged, looked down upon, or anything like that. Ostracized. He walked away sad. Why do you walk away sad from something? It's because you know there's a sense of loss with the decision you've made to walk the other way. That's the dynamic with Jesus. So imagine if that's your experience walking away from Jesus, that he loves you and you walk away sad, what the experience would be that you walk toward Jesus and accept his invitation. It's a world of wealth and glory and goodness. 
Because this is the one, you guys, this is the one. Jesus is the one who can actually legitimately say all the commands I have kept since I was a child. And there's no retort except, yep, that's right. What you got next? Really curious what follows. Really intrigued by what comes after that. And, and, and again, it's Jesus that, that, that comes to us and, and, and says, I didn't turn away and walk the other way, but the Father turned away and walked the other way. Left me crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A very legitimate question for one who's kept all the commands since he was a child. And we have the reason in retrospect. He walks away. The father walks away from Christ so that, the, so that Christ could walk toward the pit of hell in our stead so that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could then walk toward us. And so that the, the, the goodness and mercy of, of the triune God could follow us all of the days of our lives, thus enticing us to leave our insanity and follow him. Whatever the cost is minuscule relative to the gain. You know, Da Vinci's uh, Salvatore Mundi is uh, on record as um, being the most expensive painting of all time. It auctioned off in uh, uh, either 2017 or 2019 recently for $498 million. And we all know this, the value of a piece of art is exactly what the last person paid for it. And the value of the piece of art is exactly what the next person will pay for it. That's the value. And if you think about it, what was paid for your soul? What was the price that was paid for your soul? It's inestimable. It's immeasurable. It's infinite. You're so much more worth so much more than this painting. I, I, you know, I googled it. The Mona Lisa, if it's sold today, estimates are around 900 million. You're so much. It's only this little tiny thing, you guys. It's not even big. But here's the. You're so much more valuable than the greatest treasure on earth. That's a thing. The worst human being who ever lived is is greater than the best piece of art that, that ever was created in terms of dignity and value and worth. And if the price of the blood of Christ has been put on your soul, you know that there's a value greater than the value of the entire universe and all of the art that's ever been created, etc. You know, even more than the tuition that some of you pay, there's a value that's immeasurable that, that, that was put on your head that he was thrilled to pay for the joy set before him he endured the cross and you were that joy he loves you with a camel sized love even when all you have for him is a mustard seed thanks be to God let's pray together Lord thank you for the blessing of knowing Christ of belonging to Christ and the blessing especially of the awareness of how priceless We must be to you because of the immeasurable price of your own self that you paid for us, that you might be our share and that you might be our inheritance. And so now, Lord, would you take this bread and this cup and set it apart, consecrate it, and make your presence with us real even as we take in what you called your body and your blood, which we do in remembrance of you. In your name we pray. Amen.